0: Hi everyone, Uh, thank you for joining us for this webinar. My name is Margie McHugh, I'm the Director of the Migration Policy Institute's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. And we are just really, really pleased to see the the breadth of of, um, organizations and institutions and actors that have joined us for this webinar today. Um, As you you all know, um, having signed up for it, we we're releasing today some products that uh, that look at language access issues in the early childhood arena. And um, we uh, uh, we just have a lot to dive into. So before we do that, uh, let me just do a few, um, talk about a few housekeeping issues. Um, as you can see up on your screen, if you have a problem accessing the webinar, please give us a call at 202-266-1929 or write to us at events at migrationpolicy.org. There's no voice Q&A for this, but we really love to get your questions um, very early on um, in the webinar and throughout it. We're monitoring the whole time and it just really helps us either include answers as we're going along or um, just be able to organize ourselves for the the Q&A portion. we get through as many questions as possible. So please use that Q&A function throughout the webinar. Um, as you see on the screen, you can write to us at events at migrationpolicy.org or, um, or tweet us um, at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. So, um, so I just wanna, I'll just say a, a little bit about um, the background of our center, which is pretty relevant to these language access issues and how we're going about them um, how we're organizing our work around them these days. So um, we've been in existence for about 15 years within the Migration Policy Institute, the broader Migration Policy Institute. And over that time, we've uh, put a really um, deep focus on education and training issues, starting in early childhood, um, progressing through uh, elementary and secondary ed, and then also um, very much in the adult ed and workforce development space. Um, So basically, education pipeline issues um, are have always been a big focus for us as has um, language access. And it's always, uh, as all of you know, who are who are going across um, across issue areas. um, Language access is threaded across those um, also threaded across work that we do in um, health and human services or social services um, areas more generally. And then, um, and then, um, on top of that, uh, part of our work at the national level is trying to improve the governance of integration policies so language access issues are really married both to the issue arenas that we're in and they're also a big part of our work at the federal level trying to improve integration policies. And that's an important theme for this webinar, uh, because while we're going to be deep into uh, A lot of these early childhood issues today. Um, We're also working with other, uh, coordinating a working group with other civil rights groups and um, other policy organizations at the national level, um, trying to figure out what the opportunities are under the Biden administration, particularly with regard to the president's executive order. It was the first executive order that he signed upon coming into office, uh, and it seeks to advance equity in federal programs. And so a lot of what we're gonna talk about today are things that um, that we believe can also be affected by federal actions over the next several years of this administration uh, and and very much see that executive order and the work around it as a vehicle for that. So I'm saying all that at the outset because we know all of you are gonna be thinking about what you can do in your own work as you hear this information. But just also wanted to flag for you that this other work is underway, in case it's work that you'd like to connect to, or add your voices, your voices and your experiences to. So on to today's releases. Um, We are just really thrilled to get um, to be out there today, both with this brief, overlooked but essential language access policy, language access in early childhood programs. Uh, The three co-authors of that are going to be presenting in a moment. Um, related to that. And then also we're going to have a a quick overview of a lot of the data that's available in the fact sheets that are available for the top 25 states um, uh, uh, in terms of dual language learners, numbers of dual language learners. Um, We we work with a good number of groups and um, actors inside and outside of early childhood systems in a range of states. And many of them had said that in order to really uh, understand and drive some of the work that they wanna do on these issues that having fact sheets that gave their state data would be very helpful um, to them. And so we're, um, we're happy to have been able to provide it. I'm not sure our communications team was so happy to have to lay out 25 fact sheets. It's a really big job, um, but we're hugely grateful to them for doing it and just really thrilled to have this, um, have this work out there today as of today. So um, so I'll just say quickly that I'm really proud to um, introduce my three colleagues who are going to be working today, uh, sorry, speaking today um, and uh, and who are the ones who really did um, uh, Yeoman's work with getting all of this together. So Maki Park is our Senior Policy Analyst for Early Education and Care here at MPI and she really um, led all uh, all of the work here um, many of you who are on the call know her. She's been with us for. We've been lucky enough to have her working with us for um, uh, almost ten years now, and um, and this work is um, is work that she has uh, cared about and shepherded uh, for many years with us. Um, then I'm also um, pleased to introduce Jacob Hofstetter. Um, Jake Jake has been pulled into early childhood work. Um, he's. Uh, He really focuses on adult ed and workforce training as an associate policy analyst here um, and language access issues. And so because of his expertise on language access, he's played a critical role in the development of of everything that you're going to hear about today. And then um, I'm also delighted that Ivana Tu-Ni Yang has been able um, to break away from her studies that she's her graduate studies that she's moved on to Uh, but she was a research assistant with us over the last several years and played a critical role in uh, pulling together um, the data sheets and the reports. So we invited her back uh, to be part of the presentation today and are really pleased that she could join us. Um, So I'm gonna turn it over to Maki in a second, but I just wanted to remind you all again um, to please send in your questions throughout the event um, through uh, through the chat function or Uh, or by tweeting or or, or via email to us. We just really love to get questions in advance. Um, And and any we don't get to, we promise we'll get back to you individually at the end around them. So Maki, let me throw it over to you. And again, thanks to everyone who's joined us today.
1: Great, thank you, Margie. And yes, thanks so much to everyone for joining us for this conversation today. Um, I am going to start by just giving a quick overview of what we hope to cover in our time together. Um, I'll be giving just now a quick intro to the issue of language access in early childhood, what this means, why it matters, and kind of where we are at the moment on this issue. Uh, Jake will then be giving us an overview of what the law says, what are language access laws, how are they applicable to early childhood programs, and what does this mean? Um, Ivana will then take over and provide some data and a demographic overview of DLL families to give us just an idea of the scale of the issue. Uh, she'll also provide information about these households, evidence of the barriers they face, and then give a quick tour of the state fact sheets that we're also releasing today. Um, and then I'll be back to talk about policy implications and opportunities for action um, to improve language access for DLL families. And then as Margie said, we'll open things up to you all so we can answer questions that you have to wrap up our time. Next slide, please. So. Yeah, I'm going to just start by framing the issue that we're here to discuss a little bit of why we think this is such an important area for us to be looking at in the early childhood field. And I wanted to start by just breaking down what we practically mean when we talk about language access in early childhood. So as Jake is going to discuss with us, successful language access in a program is when someone's ability to speak English is not a factor in determining whether or not they can access that program. So whether or not someone speaks English should not cause a differential in terms of whether they have the opportunity to hear about the program, learn about the program, enroll in the program, and ultimately participate in the program. And as you all can likely surmise from the title of our brief and have run into from your own experiences, this is far from the reality for many early childhood programs. Whether we're talking about childcare, home visiting, preschool, we know that initially many limited English proficient communities who speak a language other than English at home are often much less likely to know that a program exists and it's available to them because of a lack of outreach and communication that they can understand, provided in places where they're likely to run across that information. They're also very likely to encounter difficulties in enrolling or registering for such a program, even if they were to learn enough about it and feel comfortable making the decision to enroll. The application form may not be translated into many languages as a starting point. And then of course, there are also compounding factors alongside language that can prevent LEP and other DLL families from accessing programs at equal rates that are related but not limited to language access, including for example, digital equity, You'll see in the data in our state data fact sheets that DLL families are less likely to have access to technology and to internet where so much information and so many forms are now located. There might also be issues related to immigration status and fears related to immigration policy. Applications that ask for information like social security numbers can of course have a chilling effect as well. And then there's the question of program relevance. So once families are enrolled, This really gets to the heart of the issue of program quality and how we define quality in the field. But if a family is enrolled in a highly rated preschool program, where nonetheless, no staff speak their home language, program materials and information are not translated into their home language, and there's nobody that they can meaningfully communicate with about their young child's experience, is this a high quality program for that family? And depending on your state, this issue of language access and linguistic competence may or may not be reflected in the quality rating system at a foundational level. And these experiences also likely contribute to disparities in enrollment. Um, Similarly in home visiting, which is such a relational model of program delivery, the idea of a family being served by a home visitor who does not speak their language and also has no understanding of their culture is unlikely to be able to deliver a program experience that meets their needs and builds a foundation of trust. The other point I wanted to touch on quickly too is that language access is not only an issue for families, it's also an issue for providers in the early childhood field. There are many LEP childcare providers who face significant challenges to registering formally in the childcare system and accessing subsidies and other forms of support because of language barriers. And this is such an important issue because actually we really need to be retaining and incentivizing these providers to stay in the field because they are the providers who are able to connect with families who speak their languages. So when we talk about equity in the early childhood field and equity for dual language learners, language access is so foundational to advancing this issue. It seems so basic and yet we know that it's a heavy lift for programs and systems to really walk the walk in meeting the true intent of language access laws. Families with children who can benefit enormously from high quality services, but cannot reap those benefits if they aren't able to participate need this change to happen. Um, So I'm going to hand this over to Jake, who's going to tell us what the law tells us we should be doing on language access
2: in early childhood. Great, thanks so much Maki, I appreciate that. So uh, as Maki mentioned, today I'm gonna be speaking um, about the right to language access as well as the federal civil rights requirements around providing language access, which also apply to early childhood programs. I'll walk through where this right comes from, who it applies to, as well as what are the implications for early childhood programs. And to conclude, I'll talk a little bit more about what additional regulations and rules around language access exist for the three major federal early childhood programs. So, broadly speaking, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 forbids discrimination on the basis of national origin in any federally assisted programs. Supreme Court rulings as well as administrative regulations issued by agencies over the previous few decades have established that not providing access to individuals to public services because they don't speak in English because they don't speak English proficiently constitutes discrimination based on national origin and thus is not allowed under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So, this, so what this means is that limited English proficient or LEP individuals have a right to meaningful access to federally-assisted programs and recipients of federal funding on the state and local level have an obligation to provide access to their services for LEP individuals. So these requirements cover state and local level recipients of federal funding, as well as those providers receiving indirect funding as well, which includes funding delivered through vouchers. So this standard of meaningful access, what does this actually mean? It means delivering accurate, timely, and effective communication at no cost to the LEP individuals seeking services from a particular recipient of federal funding. Access to those services that, this also means that this is access to these services that is not unreasonably restricted, delayed, or inferior as compared to the access to the program or activities provided to those in the community or area of service who do speak English proficiently. This access is often realized through tools such as interpreting the translation of written materials, multilingual outreach, the use of bilingual staff, and planning and evaluation processes on the part of recipients in order to ensure language access. Uh, It's also worth noting that the Clinton administration via Executive Order 13166 extended this requirement to provide meaningful access to limited English proficient individuals to both federally conducted and federally supported activities. This means that the requirement to provide language access and federally funded activities applies to both those services run directly by the federal government, such as social security, those administered by states, such as the child care, and development, child care development fund programs, and those directly managed by local or nonprofit actors, such as Head Start programs. Uh, can we move to the next slide, please? So what does this mean for early childhood programs and systems across the country? So any early childhood program that receives funding through the Department of Health and Human Services or any other federal agency must provide access to their services for limited English proficient individuals, including both children and adults. So this includes the three primary federal programs, uh, the Child Care Development Fund, Head Start, and, and home visiting programs as well. I also wanna emphasize here that Title VI requirements follow federal funding as it passes down through different entities. This means that the requirements around language access apply to funding which is passed through state agencies to local recipients as well. So funding that may originate in the Department of Health and Human Services, which is then delivered to a state agency and then granted out to sub-recipients in the state, that requirement to provide language access also applies to those local recipients as well. Now, with an understanding of this obligation in place, the question becomes, of course, how do systems, programs, and providers going go about complying with these requirements to provide language access? Well, federal agencies, as well as the Department of Justice, have provided uh, guidance to recipients to help aid compliance with language access requirements. So departments have both their own Uh, language access plans for all of their own programs and services, but federal departments have also developed what are known as limited English proficiency guidance, which is intended to help facilitate compliance with language access requirements for recipients of their funding. So these guidance help recipients determine uh, both what the needs are for language access in the areas they are serving, as well as how to best comply with the obligation to provide that standard of meaningful language access to LEP individuals. So looking specifically at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, which has its own LEP guidance for recipients of its funding. As I mentioned, this provides important information on how recipients can ensure compliance with Title VI language access requirements, Two things I want to note in particular are an assessment that it lays out known as the four factor analysis, which is intended to help recipients of HHS funding better understand the best mix of language assistance services that they should be delivering. The four factors that this test prompts local programs to consider are the number of LEP individuals likely to be served or encountered, The frequency of that contact, the nature and importance of their services, as well as the resources available to to provide that right to language access as well. So with this assessment, recipients can better understand how, what the extent of their obligations around language access will look like and how they can best comply with those. It's also worth noting that this guidance from the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as the guidance from other federal agencies, also includes practical guidance on how to ensure effective interpretation, accurate translation of written materials, how to properly train staff on language access, and also how to develop appropriate planning procedures around language access, such as, development, such as the development of language access plans. On a cross-agency level, there's also a repository of information on language access on the website LEP.gov, which I'll provide in the chat after my remarks, uh, which contains even more details on how to comply with language access requirements and also how to uh, effectively serve LEP individuals and programs. Uh, next slide, please. Um, So, beyond these obligations that apply to all federal funding, the three primary early childhood programs on the federal level also include their own regulations related to language access. So, these are based both on the specific language of the laws authorizing these programs, as well as subsequent regulations for these programs issued by uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. So, CCDF programs, Head Start, and home visiting. All each have their own regulations and statutory language regarding the accommodation of limited English proficient children and their families. So these are additional, more specific requirements for programs or state agencies receiving funding on how they should be conducting outreach or serving LEP individuals. Uh, For the sake of time, I won't go into exhaustive detail on this, so I will note that we detail this. extensively within the brief, but for example, under CCDF regulations, state lead agencies are required to report on what strategies they're using to conduct outreach to LEP families, while under Head Start providers have to use interpreters and translators where, where appropriate in order to accommodate and provide services to LEP individuals. That said, these requirements across the three primary federal programs outside of Head Start are quite limited. They're often often lacking in specificity and accountability mechanisms, such as the collection of data or other forms of evidence that language access is actually occurring. And this gets into um, the final point I wanna mention here, which also builds into Ivana's section, which is the extent of implementation, evaluation, and accountability around language access requirements in early childhood systems is really difficult to engage across the diverse programs, geographies, and providers without better data and reporting on language access. So while there is this federal framework that exists that requires providers and systems to ensure meaningful access to their programs for LEP individuals, it's really difficult without better data, without better evidence, without without better reporting to tell the extent to which these measures and larger language access requirements lead to consistent and effective outreach, access, and inclusion of of limited English proficient families by ECEC providers and systems across the country. So with that in mind, I'm gonna pass the the mic over to Ivana, who's gonna talk a little bit more about data and some of these barriers that we saw in our research as well.
3: Thank you so much, Jake. And thank you, Margie and Maki and the whole team at MPI. Um, I've really worked missed working at the center uh, since starting grad school this fall, but I'm glad to be back to share some quick data points from this uh, analysis. So I will jump right into um, some high-level context with national data based on um, MPI uh, NCIAP's analysis of a 2015 to 2019 American Community Survey data. Um, and we'll go right into the first point here. So out of all young children in the United States ages 0 to 5, um, one third of those children identify are identified as dual language learners, um, and nearly half of those um, have at least one limited limited English proficient parent, meaning that the parent self-reported speaking English less than very well. And um, that is 3.3 million children across the country that we are focused on for this analysis. And as we have reported in previous research in the center, um, where those families are also more likely to face multiple compounding factors um, that prevent access to uh, different federally funded programs, as Jake discussed. Um, so across three dimensions, the first one is parental educational attainment. Um, 29% of DLL, DLLs had at least one parent with less than a high school diploma or equivalent in formal education, compared with 9% of non-DLLs. Along the dimension of poverty levels, um, while 38% of non dll Um, households were low-income. Half of DLLs um, lived in low-income households. And as far as digital access, which was a critical point of disparity and um, vulnerability as highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic shift to remote learning, DLLs that lived in low-income houses um, with at least one LEP parent and at least one parent with less than a high school diploma or equivalent. Um, of all those children, one in four had no internet access. So um, moving on right along to the next page to, uh, regarding that demographic, that sub, those subgroups and the evidence and implications for um, their barriers to access. Um, and returning to Jake's discussion on uh, legal rights to language services, um, for these federally funded programs, under uh, the same requirements by law, um, CCDF um, authorized by CCDBG, um, it, there's been more than fifteen years of evidence showing insufficient insufficient language services. Um, that data we could trace back as far as 2006, and although it's sparse, um, the data that we were able to find pointed to um, a disproportionately lower access for uh, DLL families compared to non-DLL families. Um, and here, as far as home visiting, um, for McVee, there's a unique emphasis on staff um, that go into the homes to do the home visits, and the data that we were able to find, although, again, um, uh, less than ideal, it showed a lack of culturally... Uh, ling- culturally and linguistically diverse staff um, that left immigrant background families underserved. And if they were receiving services, often not um, culturally or linguistically responsive to their particular needs. Um, and then we're, we look at Head Start and early Head Start, uh, which actually provides an example um, of systematic data gathering and and accountability at the federal level through the form of their program information report PIR uh, requirement, which um, actually shows us a record a paper trail um, that Head Start has proportionately served DLLs over the past several years, uh, meaning that approximately one third of those enrolled um, are DLLs matching the approximately one third of DLLs across the United States. Um, So that uh, is shown proportionality uh, that other programs could look toward. And then at the state level, um, there are public pre-K programs wherein data collection and requirements are at the discretion of each state. Um, even though uh, only 31 of those states actually reported the number of DLLs uh, in their programs, um, more were required to do so. Um, and then of those, only eight were serving DLLs proportionally compared to the respective uh, state demographic profile. And we had um, amazing research assistance uh, from our former intern, Stephanie, to help us with that analysis. So moving right along into um, the implications of linguistic diversity. So um, here we're looking at the top 10 languages other uh, than English as a share of households that speak languages other than English in the home. Um, I would like to draw your attention in particular to this part of the uh, chart at the end, um, which represents languages number 11 and beyond that represent one-fourth of all DLL households speaking dozens of other languages that cannot be listed here on this chart that are just as granular and even more granular than the languages that are shown uh, representing approximately 1% of the population population. Um, So that's 1.9 million children um, speaking languages that um, are even more diverse than uh, the top 10 in the country. So, um, And at the state and local levels, these less commonly spoken languages can represent even more significant portions of the population considering um, how communities gather geographically based on cultural and linguistic factors. Um, So of course, this raises, raises the challenge of how to Um, target services uh, more effectively at all levels of government um, when the uh, linguistic diversity uh, increases at the granular granular levels. So um, on that note, um, I will move right into um, a walkthrough of our state data fact sheets um, because of um, the levels of increased super diversity uh, of languages that we've talked about. So um, as mentioned today, we have published um, data fact sheets for the top 25 states um, based on immigrant population. And I thought I would walk through Massachusetts, um, given that that's my home base right now. Um, So I am going to do a brief walkthrough, but happy to take additional questions um, as folks look at their specific state fact sheets that are available online now. So um, each fact sheet uh, here is uh, focused on four dimensions and within each dimension we try to pull out brief top line points. Um, These are the bullet points in the lower left that you'll see here, Um, but the full data from which these are pulled are already available available on the MPI website. Um, So the first dimension that we are discussing is the Um, language diversity, as mentioned. Um, Here you can see in Massachusetts that there um, is also approximately a quarter of DLLs that speak um, more uh, languages than just the top 10. And um, lastly, I uh, want to point out the second, third and fourth dimensions on the next slide Regarding uh, low income status, uh, formal levels of educational attainment, and um, digital access. Um, so, uh, for educational attainment, uh, for example, um, for parents, this there's important variation by state that we noticed in doing all the different um, state fact sheets. Uh, some parents have uh, very high level, uh, high education levels. Uh, parents of DLLs, whereas some parents of DLLs had. Um, disproportionately low levels of educational attainment. And we wanted to share that full spread um, in this figure number three. Um, And then returning to the importance and cruciality of digital access in um, implications for learning gaps uh, before and, of course, underscored during the COVID-19 pandemic shift to remote learning, um, we can see that, uh, at least here in Massachusetts, um, DLLs had disproportionately higher lack of access to internet and devices to be able to do uh, remote learning compared to their peers. Um, So with that demographic overview, um, I will turn it over to Maki for policy recommendations.
1: Great, thank you so much Ivana for moving through that dense and complex information really fluidly. Um, We are really excited to get this state data into your hands and hope that it gives you just some good baseline information to go on in your advocacy in your states around language access. And we hope too that you'll reach out to us if we can provide any additional support in that process. And I know we'll have our contact information at the end of the presentation. Um, And also just a friendly reminder to continue sending in your questions um, as we move toward the end of the presentation. I already see a bunch of great questions that have come in that we're excited to address. Um, But before I jump into policy implications, I did wanna kind of follow-up on everything Jake and Ivana have said to sort of paint a picture of where we're at on language access in early childhood right now based on what we know. You heard from Ivana that we have a whole section on disparities in access that show the under-participation of LEP families in a number of early childhood programs in the brief. So we do know that many key early childhood programs do not serve LEP families at equal rates, which raises concerns. What's more difficult is to prove that these disparities are a direct result of language access issues. And part of what makes this so difficult is exactly the lack of accountability that Jake spoke to in his discussion. We are currently doing a close look, for example, at state CCDBG plans, where states have checked boxes to indicate state, the steps that they're taking to provide language access services to LEP families. So this means that a state might check a box, for example, to say that their website is translated into other languages, or a state might say that a translation and interpretation hotline is provided to increase access for LEP families and providers. But when investigated further, first of all, these pieces may not actually be in place at all. And if they are, it may be that the website just has a Google translate bar that provides a barely comprehensible translation of its content. It may be that while there is an interpretation line available, that those who attempt to use it face wait times of several hours, making this a highly impractical way to actually get information. And this really is the kind of thing that we've been hearing from our partners at the state level. And beyond language access practices, we also know that many programs fail to collect data about home languages spoken and English proficiency of the families they serve. So in many cases, we're needing to make inferences and find proxy information to try to determine whether families are being equitably served at all. So as we're looking at these policy implications, we're really interested in finding ways to increase transparency, increase accountability, and make sure that the intent of the laws that Jake spoke about are carried through in implementation. We already know that the letter of the law is not enough to ensure inclusive services. On the other hand, including language about language access in legislation is critical to being able to build in accountability for the future. So you'll see our first recommendation is simply that as new programs are developed as early childhood programs expand and new funding streams are hopefully created. We hope that we will see explicit language about DLLs and LEP families as a necessary but not sufficient condition to advance these issues. Ideally, this legislation would also be tied to explicit resources and a budget to realistically facilitate implementation. And regular reporting, monitoring and evaluation would ideally also be written in to ensure that these laws are being appropriately translated into practice and outcomes. And then moving on to some of the other policy opportunities that we identify in the brief, Um, Identifying DLLs in state early childhood data systems is also key to increasing accountability and giving policymakers the information that they need in order to truly respond to ongoing demographic changes and language needs in real time. Without this data, it's impossible to know whether LEP families and speakers of specific home languages are being equitably served. Having this information about children's home languages provides incredibly important context, especially as Ivana was showing us, um, given that languages that are spoken at a small scale at national or even state levels may be very prominent at local levels, which would call for targeted support. So this data advocacy around collecting information on DLLs is something we are always pushing on um, just to make these needs known and visible. Uh, Next, we talk about finding ways to integrate greater language access accountability into state early childhood systems. And primarily here we are talking about quality rating and improvement systems or QRIS. In order to improve the responsiveness of early childhood programs to language needs, we need to be reflecting the importance of this issue in rating systems. On the one hand, incentivizing language skills by rewarding, for example, the hiring and retention of staff that speak home languages but also requiring at a baseline that programs are able to provide translation and interpretation of program materials into the languages spoken by families they serve. The ability to provide language access and a language match for families should really be tightly woven into our concept of program quality, whether that's for childcare or home visiting or any program if we're going to achieve equitable outcomes. The next piece we talk about is around program reporting and evaluation for existing early childhood programs. Both at the state level and at the federal level, there's a need to explicitly look at LEP families access as part of program reporting, especially for federally funded programs like CCDBG and MIECHV. This is necessary, as we've been saying, to ensure that programs are complying with language access requirements that are written into the law. Programs should be required to provide evidence of compliance with language access requirements, a way to demonstrate that language services are appropriate and sufficient. Documents like written language access plans, certification of bilingual employees, budgeted expenses for language access, these are all examples of ways to demonstrate that services are being provided. We also talk about providing language access services through regional or community hubs. We know that providing sufficient language access can be resource intensive, especially in communities where a large number of languages other than English are spoken. States can consider supporting these efforts by providing hubs to meet particular language access needs like translation and interpretation for less commonly spoken languages to really be able to improve the capacity of individual programs and entities that are currently trying to provide these services with limited support. So this could really just be a way of preventing multiple programs and services from kind of reinventing the wheel and duplicating their work. And then the final recommendation we point to is really to leverage the great work that is already being done out there by trusted community organizations. Um, And by community organizations, we're largely referring to smaller, culturally specific organizations that are embedded in the communities they serve. Communities that are often labeled as being hard to reach by larger mainstream organizations. These are places that are staffed by folks who have deep and trusting relationships with families, who understand their cultural context and who speak their home languages. That means that they're equipped not only to be able to communicate in a language that families understand, but that they're also aware of and can attend to many of the other barriers to services that they may be facing, some of which Ivana spoke to earlier. These are organizations that have deep skills and knowledge, but also tend to be smaller and have less capacity to apply for grants that could help them to expand and scale up their work. So again just placing a value on the skill set and resources that organizations like this bring to the table lifting up the importance of language access and funding this work and partnering with those that are able to bridge between institutions and families who can benefit from services that they currently are not accessing and i am going to stop there so that we have plenty of time for questions Um, and margie i'll hand this back over to you
0: thanks maki um, so I'm thinking, just seeing some of the questions that um, I might say one or two things off the top, um, and then um, and then Maki, I think I'll um, I'll uh, pitch a few um, questions to you right um, right afterwards. So um, I just want to I guess clarify that um, you know um, having having worked for many years um, at the state and local level. Um, on these issues, the question of funding um, to provide language access service. Um, And well, of course, it's a big part of our work now at MPI too, just trying to um, to help states and localities in particular um, with thinking about their strategies um, around those um, issues. And I think think it's safe for me to paraphrase the opinion of the, 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 the orientation of the federal government um, which is that when it comes to civil rights laws, um, they're you know like basically they're not going to pay you more as you run your service, not to discriminate people based on their race or their ethnicity or their national origin, and um, and so that's why there's not you know like it's a it's it's a civil rights issue, and so um, it's just a bedrock piece of law that you may not do that. And you and individuals um, or organizations you know can bring lawsuits or bring complaints to the offices of civil rights within agencies um, if an individual is not able to get um, equitable access to a service um, based on uh, based on um, uh, the lack of appropriate um, not just translation and interpretation services at the front end, you know, telling you about a service, uh, because what's the good of telling you about a service in your language if you can't access the service because of the language it's given in. So, you know, it gets pretty, um, it gets pretty uh, complicated pretty quickly um, for states and localities and for individual programs to figure out how to do this. And, um, and so one of the things that, um, uh, that's, and localities have done in a lot of cases is pass their own laws um, regarding the provision of language access services just to um, cover cover their own roles and their own services and often to build capacity in their systems to address language access issues across both federal you know the pass through money from the federal down to the state down to localities. So um, Jake might be, Jake, why don't you put into the chat, you know, we recently, um, somewhat recently published, um, published a report on a bunch of the strategies um, uh, and elements that um, states and localities have put into their laws to support um, language access provision um, in services in their states. And I'll just throw out a few examples that those of you who are writing in about cost issues um, might want to, you know, might want to ask more explicit questions about. Um, one of the things that we've seen and that we've tried to kind of package in different ways in our recommendations at the federal level is what are some of the ways that higher levels of government can um, create, um, can purchase in a sense, um, or open up contracts that um, when you aggregate the demand that a system is going to face, you can do a contract that will bring down the price very often um, for translation. So you see those kinds of master contracts opened up um, at the the city, the county, the state level in a number of places where the state isn't putting extra money into those necessarily, but it's getting you the best price by bargaining down um, individual session costs for different languages. And that's one of the best ways that we've seen Uh, for being able to get languages, some of the the very low incidence languages um, actually covered at a very reasonable rate um, because you can get it at a better rate under master contracts that are gonna bring a lot of business um, to a particular translation service. Um, So um, so anyway, um, just wanted to kind of open up those parts of the issue for some of you who are writing in And then in the meantime, Maki, let's bring it back to childcare in particular. Um, There are a few questions that um, have been raised uh, um, that I'm gonna uh, just send your way now. Um, One is um, what has our research found um, in terms of language access potentially being different in certain early learning settings, for example, um, family childcare compared to others? And then also what about access to uh, mandated training in, uh, like in um, their preferred languages for early educators? And um, well, I'll, I'll just leave it there and give you the second part of the question later, but um, this is something you've written on in terms of the ECEC workforce and, um, and language access issues. And you mentioned it at the start, maybe you could talk a little bit more about it now.
1: Yeah, thank you, Margie. I love these questions because the diversity of the workforce and the skills and capacity of the workforce is so critical to being able to provide language access and again really gets to this heart of the issue of program quality. Um, And yes, family childcare and more informal forms of childcare are far more likely to offer a language match um, and therefore language access to the families they serve. And when you look at, we put out previous reports actually about the immigrant childcare workforce, and it is there is a large proportion of immigrants in the childcare workforce, which is great news because it means that we have linguistic diversity. But when you look at the workforce and how it's stratified by the kinds of childcare provided, if you look at the more costly, the more formalized uh, sectors of childcare, such as center-based care um, and formal pre-K settings, These settings have higher qualifications. Um, They also have higher compensation. And this is not where you're going to find the linguistic diversity in the workforce. Kind of the lower on the ladder that you look in terms of the formality of the setting, the more likely you're going to find workers who speak the languages of the families they serve. And this really speaks to what program quality is for DLL families, um, as I was saying earlier. And yet there's a huge problem here because there's no way where it's very difficult right now for immigrant workers to be able to move up that ladder and therefore for us to advance and retain the diversity that we do have in the workforce. And in many cases, when you look even um, at more informal forms of childcare like family, friend and neighbor care where there's a large overrepresentation of providers of color and providers who speak languages other than English. Many of those providers who wish to become registered are not able to become part of the system at all. And that speaks to the inaccessibility of QRIS. It speaks to the lack of trainings in in languages other than English or potentially maybe Spanish and Chinese, but much less likely the other less commonly spoken languages. And it also speaks exactly to language barriers in the process of becoming registered and the many bureaucratic barriers and hurdles that workers face. And so on the one hand, it's very good news that family childcare and FFN care tend to offer a better language match. On the other hand, we really need to think about what that means for the field and how we can leverage the assets and the incredible resources that we have in terms of early childhood workers and how we can help them to advance in the field and to help the children in their care
0: thrive. Um, So Maki, I don't know if you saw that the the second half of the question about um, training uh, for early educators the second half was about access to state-mandated assessments for young children in the child's home and often their only language, which is not English. And is that covered under Title VI? My sense is that um, um, that it's not because um, uh, Lowry Nichols is largely understood to only apply um, to K twelve. Or is it? Or is it not that? Is it? Um, is it that? Um, well, anyway, sorry, just what, what is the reason that, uh, do you know what it is or do we need to write back about that later? Um,
1: I can let Jake jump in. Um, I think there is some ambiguity in terms of whether it could be interpreted to apply to early childhood settings. Um, so it's it has to do with how one yeah, reads the law um, and maybe Jake can speak more to those specifics. But in general, regardless of what the legal mandate may or may not be or how different states and localities are interpreting that, I can say with certainty that this is not something that is happening in the field and at a baseline um, that we don't even have many of the assessments available in the languages that many DLL families speak. And this is something um, that we've talked about at great length in other areas as well. Um, but is a huge need when we also, also when we think about accountability and data collection for DLLs, if we don't have an understanding of how these children are doing and what their experiences have been, how can we ensure program quality for this population? Um, Yeah, Jake, do you want to speak a bit more to the the legal side?
2: Yeah, I I would just say that, uh, first of all, I think it's a great question and something that definitely will, will touch base internally and get get back to you with a more detailed answer, but just like Maki said, there can be some ambiguity over what exactly is um, a violation under Title VI and what is not. So we'll discuss more about that exact mechanism and how Title VI might fit in, and then definitely we'll, we'll get back to you with a more comprehensive response.
0: And I'll just say in practical terms, um, a number of you on the call know that we run a semi-private um, network of um, folks who are working on um, dual language learner issues in their states, the national dual language learner Roundtable, And And um, You know, I think practically speaking, a lot of folks that are working on these issues are thinking, well, you know, there's so many things that need to happen at once. If you were gonna start to do assessments of children or, you know, in any number of programs, um, if you were um, were going to um, uh, be trying to um, capture more information about home language and how it's used, um, by the child and and um, and the like, you'd need to have a workforce that could actually do that. You'd need to have data systems um, that could um, capture that information. You'd need to have the assessments, et cetera, et cetera. And so, a number of the um, initiatives that we see that are are pretty promising are things like legislation that um, that was recently passed in California for the identification of dual language learners. Um, maybe, Maki, you could drop in the chat the, um, the piece we did last year on DLL identification and what are the implications for systems? What are the other capacities that are needed um, to um, to really move in the early childhood space with identification of DLL children uh, and how to have these interlocking pieces um, happen? Um, you know, uh, in a way. But I think that you know, I think a lot of places have been caught off guard. You know, they um, especially for, um, uh, for children ages three to five, um, you know, the thought was that Head Start was doing a decent job of it, but then you know, states started to push a lot of their money into an expansion of pre-K and um, those expansions are happening without really thinking about or building um, the capacities to meet the needs of immigrant background fam- kids and their families. And yet, if you look at all the data that's there in the data sheets, you know, um, if you're trying to target these services to low-income families um, and families that face economic insecurity, you know, the key data points are usually living in poverty, um, parents with less than a high school diploma or equivalent, uh, and then, you know, it goes through the four or five data points that um, the top line data points that we've got in those um, data sheets for you, kind of any sort of targeting um, uh, you know really leads you to this population and that we really haven't built the workforce um, uh, to be able to um to work with these um, to work effective to well, to identify, um, to make them visible within systems and um, to be able to work effectively with them. And um, so anyway, so along those lines, I would just say, That's why we have a very big focus on DLL identification and we're happy to share more. And I really have sympathy for a few people who are in big state agencies who are written in to say, clearly we need this data, Um, but it is a huge, uh, huge effort to start adding new data points and systems. And um, you may not like my answer to, um, you know, how do we make this a priority and what would that look like? But under Build Back Better, um, uh, a major piece of, of the um, Build Back Better law that wasn't passed as part of the, um, the budget deal just a few months ago um, uh, was the were the child care provisions within it. And some of you may know that dual language learner children were called out as a priority population within that. And so if that law comes back around or if that piece of the law that didn't um, that didn't move forward as part of the big budget um, budget deal um, when that comes back, I would say you know keeping your eye on the fact that that law in a sense assumes that dlls will need to be identified um you know that that's that that certainly will be a giant step forward um, in trying to more um, kind of appropriately um, address the needs of um, of those um, of those children and families and sort of, Force some of the capacity building that you know over the last fifty years, K twelve has built. Um, you know, built it very quickly in some places, and um, and then as immigration went from sort of a five state issue to a forty five state issue over the last thirty years or so, that that building has been happening um, all over the um, <clears throat> you know in many states and localities that are newer destinations for um, um, for immigrants. Um, so, um, so just returning, um, uh, just returning to um, to some of the questions. Um, uh, one of them um, had to do with OCR complaints. Jake, um, are we aware of uh, recent OCR complaints? Uh, where can people find out more about that? So maybe if you could just review again um, what OCR complaints are, how they can be filed. And um, where folks can find information about um, about different cases that have been brought would be great.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, if so, one of the um, so this gets very uh, complicated very quickly. But one of the difficult pieces of language access is that um, unless there's proof of intentional discrimination on the part of the recipient of federal funding there's no actually right to file a lawsuit so one of the main avenues if there's not intentional discrimination against LAP individuals is to use an administrative complaint process which is a civil rights complaint process that goes through different agencies offices of civil rights where those offices of civil rights take in complaints review them um, then invest potentially investigate them and will generally work with the recipient to bring them back into compliance around what other particu- whatever particular civil rights issue that would be language access in this case. Um, so uh, I can provide uh, some links that I, I dropped in a chat but I actually think it was a private chat. So I'll, I'll share it out with everyone where you can see different examples of these resolutions of these cases. Um, so I can share both those related to K-12 systems as well as those related to uh, from the Department of Health and Human Services, um, I share, not, share those also because I think they provide really interesting looks into what are some of the violations of the right to language access that have been investigated by these different agency OCRs. What do they look like? What are the types of things that providers need to do to be coming into compliance? So these complaints are not just—they're um, not just there to, to provide. Like negative examples, they also provide some constructive information on what are the types of things that providers can do to be in compliance with, um, with language access requirements under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act as well. So I will share that in the chat uh, right now.
0: Um, so Maki, I'll just um, combine um, two questions here for you. One had to do with what are some federal and state resources that are available for translating materials for child care centers? Um, and I don't know if that's sort of like a CCRNR um, question, but also, um, can you speak a little more to the barriers that um, linguistically diverse childcare providers face when trying to open um, or, you know, become a more formal um, childcare site? Um, in addition to just having training and accessible um, languages, what other, what else could state governments be doing um, to make those opportunities more accessible?
1: Yeah. Thanks, Margie. Um, unfortunately, I feel like the latter question about barriers is easier to answer than um, the, um, the resources that are available, but I can, I can address the one and try and get to the other. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to the barriers for um, an LEP provider to formalize their childcare and open, for example, a childcare center, um, there are really barriers across kind of the whole spectrum of experience. On the one hand, like beginning to even know that if, if you're an informal provider that there are subsidies available to you, um, that might not be information that reaches a lot of people. Um, that this is something that's possible for them to do might not be information that they receive. So information and outreach about the process and about the possibility is, is one point and just getting access to that knowledge. The technology barriers that Ivana spoke to are also huge. Um, A lot of the information and application materials as well as guidelines um, and some of the regulations that one needs to know about in, in order to embark on this process, a lot of that is to be found on the internet and that's not something that many people have access to in many cases. And then once you begin in the process, the whole kind of spectrum of the experience of QRIS implementation is also unfortunately fairly normative um, in the way that it's run. So if we think about, if you're familiar with, for example, the Ecker's scale, which rates the environment that you're planning on opening a childcare center in, um, this often does not account for cultural difference in the kinds of environments where childcare might be provided. The class tool, which uh, measures the quality of uh, caregiver-child interaction, also has a lot of culturally normative pieces built in, such as sustained eye contact, which might not be appropriate um, in certain cultures. So yeah, it's a kind of across the, the gamut. And then, but really I think it comes down to this information imbalance, which is even if the Eckers in the class were difficult to comply with and to get high ratings on, if those guidelines aren't translated into your language, you're already at a huge disadvantage in terms of knowing what you're getting into and what the possibilities are for you Um, to increase your chances of of getting a good rating. Um, And the kinds of people who are doing the work of being QRIS evaluators, how culturally competent is that staff? Um, And then also to the question of resources, but also uh, just trying to address this issue of what states can be doing to make this opportunity more um, accessible, really goes back to our um, conversation about partnering with culturally specific organizations. There are amazing organizations like Candellan in Arizona, Lared in Minnesota, um, similar organizations, I'm sure across states that are really doing this resource intensive and skill-based work of walking alongside LEP providers to make sure that they can get the skills um, and go through the processes they need in order to become licensed. Um, from in a broader scale, I know heads also has quite a few um, resources, both in terms of guidelines and ideas about how to make programs more culturally and linguistically accessible, as well as some resources, um, which I can share. Looks like we're running out of time, so maybe not in the chat, but follow up with as well.
0: Right. I think we uh, may need to um, uh, just um, follow up with folks with a, a, you know an email with a few additional um, resources that have both been suggested in the chat um, and also that we might want to include. Um, I think I'll just um, respond to two things quickly. One was a question about any technology innovations um, that might support language access in EC systems. Um, I would, you know, we, and um, uh, I, I guess this is another thing we can send out. But, you know, there's a big discourse about, um, for example, um, Uh, putting, putting more information, making more uh, information available um, via cell phone for families, since that's a very, the the most common type of technology that's available uh, for many immigrant families and um, doing that in languages that they understand. Also, we saw a lot during COVID where um, different uh, city offices, for example, that were trying to get out COVID information um, rather than trying to do it sort of with a paper translation or expecting that people would find information online, they would simply advertise that they were going to do a, a sort of like a um, a briefing call, you know, or just a call in that would be in many many different languages, just different phone numbers to call in and get the information in a language that um, that um, individuals would choose which would also be a way to um, uh, overcome some literacy barriers that, um, that individuals might have. So um, there are a lot of strategies out there. I think we're more in the hunt here um, for policy level changes that would, uh, rather than having a lot of box checking, like yes, federal government, you know, state saying we know we have this responsibility and we told everyone else they had this responsibility. You know, I think we're looking for um, ways to have it be that both um, there's more support for programs, um, more technical assistance, more resources, um, places to go where they can um, where they can get some shortcuts um, uh, to things that that are amenable to shortcuts, but then also that system building efforts that are underway are really tied to measures um, of equity um, uh, for um, key subpopulations, just to make sure that a system building happens, it doesn't say we can't get to that issue right now. You know, We've heard that for 10 or 15, 20 years now, You know, really now is the time to, um, uh, to not be looking past these issues um, any longer, especially with equity issues on the table, um, that this is obviously a key equity issue for a key population that um, does experience inequitable access and is a key priority for services given the profiles of families. Um, So anyway, with that, thank you so much to all of you for joining us, and um, we look forward to staying in touch and um, answering any questions that we didn't get to. We'll get back to you individually. Thanks again for all the important work all of you are engaged in, and um, we're happy to be more in touch with you about it if you think we can be any help. Thanks again, and take care.